Welcome to Broad and Walnut. I'm your host, Michael Gorman. We are brought to you today by Run Avalon. RunAvalon.com. Go check them out and buy some of their gear. RunAvalon.com. On the pod today, we have Craig Grossman. For those of you who don't know Craig, I haven't met anyone who cares more about the city of Philadelphia than Craig. Uh, Craig was the driving force behind the total transformation of 13th Street. He came to Philadelphia roughly 20 years ago, and he and his company bought 24 properties on and around 13th Street, and they created a whole new neighborhood that we now call today Midtown Village. Um, But back in the late 90s, 13th Street was filled with prostitution and drugs, and Craig was tasked with cleaning the whole thing up. And it's a a pretty amazing story. I had actually never heard the story before. I had been wanting to talk to Craig personally for a long time, and he tells the story. And uh, if you care about Philly, if you go out on 13th Street, um, you'll like what you hear. That's the first half of the pod. The second half of the pod, we learn all about what Craig is up to today. And yes, uh, you've guessed it. He's trying to do what he did to Midtown Village to a whole nother neighborhood, whole other neighborhood. I always say nother, whole nother. It's whole other neighborhood. He's trying to do that to a whole other neighborhood today. Uh, which is great, and we'll learn all about that. And we also finally learn what the hell the Reading Viaduct is anyway. So I really like Craig. Uh, I really loved our conversation. So here we go. Hey, Greg Grossman, how are you? I'm great. How you doing, Michael? I'm good. Good. So I definitely want to discuss with you what you're up to now with the Spring Arts District, but I primarily wanted to have you on the pod because no one knows the evolution of 13th Street and Midtown Village better than you. I think we can all agree that 13th Street between Locust and Chestnut is the hottest and liveliest restaurant street in the city of Philadelphia and really transformed a whole neighborhood, which we now refer to as Midtown Village, but back 15 or 20 years ago, um, that was certainly not the, the name of that neighborhood. Um, And it certainly wasn't the way 13th Street was either. I was actually doing some research and I saw the term red light district uh, is what 13th Street was referred to at one point in the 90s. So let's kind of start at the beginning if we could. When and how did you first come across 13th Street? So I came down from New York in late 1998, early 1999, uh, specifically brought here to work on the transformation of that pocket of Center City and started, you know, almost immediately really just working on beginning to clean that up, putting together a master plan, thinking about how we could take this interesting collection of -of turn-of-the-century assets that was really located in the heart of Center City, but like you mentioned, was a red-light district and people would avoid that pocket like the plague. Um, But you knew there was all this activity taking place around it, and it just felt very rational to think that this was a hole in the donut and there was energy moving towards it. If we could clean it up, curate it, do something interesting with programming it, re-tenant it, raise the taste level of tenancy, that we could fill that in and we'd have something special. What was the issue? I mean, was it really a red light district? I mean, 
how bad was it? What, like, how, it seems so obvious that that would be a good neighborhood. It's right in the heart of the city, two blocks to the east of City Hall, two blocks from the convention center, right in the middle. Like, how, how did it become the way it was? Well, I, my guess is, I mean, I wasn't here to sort of see the deterioration that took place because um, at, at some point it was um, a fairly uh, happening pocket with commercial trade that was taking place there. There were several furriers that were there. There were, this is going back into like the mid-20th century. I mean, there was commerce that took place there. Um, I just believe that prior ownership, uh, the Rappaport estate was, was one fairly significant owner of real estate there. And, uh, you know, these properties were not shown much love um, back, uh, I think, after the mid-20th century. And, you know, when you're not there managing the assets and when you're not there curating the assets, uh, they can fall in disrepair. Um, when we took title to some of these properties in, you know, really between 99 and, let's say, 2001, they were specifically, um, there was pornography, there was drug trafficking, there were uh, tenancies that would just keep you away from the street. So I'm not exactly sure how it got there, but yeah. that's what we inherited. Uh, but of course, you know, with a sort of fresh perspective, we saw it as an opportunity. So how do you begin to start getting the drugs out of there, or the pornography out of there? Like, what, what's the first step you make? So some of the first things that we did, we removed the security gates from the buildings. We added some facade lighting. We started to paint facades. Uh, tenancies that didn't fit with our vision. If, if we were able to move them out of the properties, we did that. Um, we started to, you know, to show that we respected these properties, and we also began to communicate a vision for it and you know, really look to you know, begin to raise the taste level of tenancy there. All right, so you needed a tenant, uh, I guess either a retailer or a restaurateur, to sort of take a chance here, right? So that you were tasked with going out and finding somebody, someone to, to take a risk. And who was the first, who were the first people that started to come in? So the first, I mean, and look, food and beverage, that ignites change on the street, right? If you want to create place and revitalize a neighborhood, uh, certainly bringing F&B is a good way to do that. That brings people to a pocket, right? So um, while looking for those potential operators and realizing that, look, back then, all the Philadelphians thought that that was the worst part of town, right? Nobody wanted to be here. And we offered up space to Stephen Starr, Neil Stein back then. We offered to the, the operators that were, were doing interesting things. We offered up space to them, and nobody wanted to come. So... Wow. We ended up actually opening up our own restaurant there. Um, it was a restaurant called Trust, um, and it's currently where Alves is right now. Okay. So back in 2001, Trust opened up, and that was a way to bring people to the neighborhood. So you know, we controlled what that looked like and brought in um, a chef, front of the house folks with some taste, and together, you know, we we ignited that change there, and that was really the beginning of bringing in other operators. So Capagiro followed soon after that, being across the street. Um, uh, Marcy and Valerie with Open House, the home furnishing store a little bit north of, of that corner. Uh, they began to do very well. They quickly said, hey, um, of course, Marcy is a trained chef. 
and had been working in that uh, industry for a long time, asked about uh, potentially doing a restaurant in one of our spaces. So we quickly helped collaborate with her um, on her little Mexican restaurant, Lolita, and it all started to you know, evolve from there. They seem to be credited as, as some of the first uh, people in 13th Street, Valerie uh, Saffron and Marcy Turney. They have, I think, five restaurants right now, Lolita, Hemanera, Barbuso, Bud and Maryland's and Little Nana's. And then they also own Grocery, Open House, and Verde. So they, they have eight different businesses on the street. So they come to you and they said they want to open Open House, which is a houseware store. And you guys decide, did they have any experience in the housewares business? No. And you guys just, you believed in them, took a chance. They opened the store. Yeah, I mean, that that's, I think, part of the, um, you know, it's part of the recipe where... You know, you're looking for tastemakers, and instinctually, it feels like you found somebody that you can collaborate with. Um, we took a little bit of a chance with Open House with them, but it felt like, you know, when, when they started telling us about the types of, of um, products that they would carry and the companies that they would carry, you get a sense immediately of their, of their level of taste. So, um, you know, it wasn't a, a, a huge risk to go with them. And we're all about, you know, engaging the entrepreneur, the local entrepreneur, making that uh, investment in um, Philadelphia entrepreneurs. And, you know, we, uh, we decided to move forward with them. And it was obviously, um, they were successful immediately with Open House and actually doubled the size of the space oh, wow. within the first six months. And then, of course, Marcy is a trained chef and really wanted to, to do her own thing with with a restaurant, and Lolita followed suit pretty soon after. So we, when you guys were operating Trust, at what point do you, does, does that close and you turn it over to Stephen Starr at Elvez? Yeah, so I think we always felt that, um, you know, in a perfect world, you know, you'd rather have a little bit more of a traditional landlord-tenant relationship. So uh, even though that was part of the, the recipe for igniting change there is to open up your own food and beverage operation, but ultimately you really want to hand that over and recognize highest and best use. And if you can find an operator that you know will do a great job, then why not uh, you know hand it over? And, and Stephen obviously is somebody that you know is, is was and is highly respected, and he had been looking. You know, we had shared the, the opportunity with I him. Was say, that's the interesting part. Early right? Just on. a few years earlier, he was not interested, and now I guess after you open trust and. Valerie Marcy open open house things start happening and Stephen Starr takes another look at it. Yeah, he could see that there was real opportunity and and he knew just like we envisioned that he could take that to another level, mm-hmm. um, which is what you know the street and neighborhood um, needed. So he opens Elvez in two thousand three, and is that really the tipping point at which then Thirteenth Street becomes really known and, and Midtown Village becomes a neighborhood that people are talking about? Yeah, I mean, I think they were talking about it before then, but I think that, you know, that really solidified it. Yeah. Um, you it know. seems when that opened, that it was a hit right away. It was. Um, and from what I understand, it's been, you know, that business of Elvez has grown, um, you know, each and every year since they've been around. Yeah. So, yeah, big, big success. And that obviously opened up other people's eyes, other operators' eyes. And, you know, soon after that, you started to see... Uh, more food and beverage and other uh, retail concepts start to fill in. Yeah, you have Sampan, Zavino, Lolita, as I mentioned earlier, the uh, Hemanera, Barbuzo, Bud of Maryland's Little Nana, Tradice, 
the vintage wine bar Capogiro, which you meant earlier, uh, mentioned earlier. Um, and it seems like this sort of then started to push away from 13th Street and made all the other blocks around it better as well. Did you see that? Uh, well, that was the hope that you know other uh, property owners would see what we were doing and they would have interest in raising the taste level of tenancy and showing their buildings some love and they would recognize that there was an opportunity to, to do something bigger and better. Um, yeah, so we had hoped that there would be other folks that would you know, see it the way we were seeing it. And organically, over time, that ultimately happens. What was it, jumping back to when you guys were operating Trust, what was that like? Did you, you didn't have any experience operating a restaurant before, did you? I, I didn't personally, but there were other folks that were involved in the operation that did. Yeah. Uh, so it wasn't, um, it wasn't too um, um, odd of a, of a concept. Okay. Um, for me, it was, you know, it was certainly a learning experience. It was something that opened my eyes to realizing how food and beverage can really bring people to a neighborhood and ignite change on the street. Were you there when Michael Scholson opened Sampan? Sure. You were? Yeah. Okay. What, what was there before Sampan? So, yeah, there, were, there was a... So we built that one-story building, and we brought in a, um, a clothing retailer. It was mostly... Kids clothing and kids furniture. The name is escaping me right now, um, but it was a shorter term deal to see if it worked out and um, it wasn't working out for either the operator or us as landlords. Um, and Michael was looking for his first brick and mortar concept um, and uh, that evolved fairly quickly. And now Michael owns Double Knot next door. I mean, Sampan seems another one that seems when it opened, it was a hit right away. And it still continues to grow to this day. Correct. So when people, I guess before that all happened, McGillan's was down there, right? Uh, which is obviously the oldest bar, I yeah. think, in, they say in the country. Yeah. Oldest pub in the country. And people were obviously going there, which is a half block away. I mean, it's, such, it's interesting that they couldn't, there's something stopping them from going a half block uh, to the east. When you were curating that, were you thinking about the, the merchandising mix? Like, were you trying to put together the right mix at the time? Definitely, definitely. Um, that w Early on, it was looking at the map and thinking, all right, where can I, um, you know, how would this operator go with this operator? So, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a strategy behind it. It, it evolves. I mean, it didn't turn out to be exactly what we thought it was going to be from day one. But once you start to go with food and beverage, and, all right, I've got... Um, you know, Capogiro and they're serving gelato and coffee. I probably don't want to have another coffee operator. I want to give them the best opportunity to succeed and, and, and sort of be sustainable. Um, you go with um, a Lolita and that BY, which was a BYO Mexican concept. Um, I'm not going to have another Mexican concept, although Elvez, but that was a liquor license and, you know, it was, it was a little bit more of a, a mainstream. Um, you know, larger scale concepts. So you, you want to think about how these folks are going to synergize with each other and you want to give them all an opportunity to really succeed and give people, you know, customers the, the, uh, the choices and the options to continue to come back to 13th to, to experience all the flavors. Yeah, I mean, your thoughtfulness and your sensitivity towards not having uh, guys compete against each other is obviously so important and much different than other blocks where there's single owners of buildings who don't care what the other guy's doing a few doors down. He wants the highest rent and whatever tenant comes in there. So um, you guys had an advantage where you owned all the, all the businesses. And then not only that, you were also sensitive to who you were putting in there. And, Correct, and, absolutely. And, and it was a reason why it's so successful, really. 
Yeah, I'd like to think that has, that has something to do with it. Yeah, yeah. We, were, we, were, we were thoughtful in our approach. Is anything missing on 13th Street? Was there anybody that you wanted to get or any, any type of restaurant that just never, you guys weren't able to land? I mean, early on, you know, you, we met with, I met with the La Cologne guys early on when they only had 19th Street. You know, they were not, obviously, they were nowhere um, near to, you know, the, the place that they are in their, in their growth uh, today, so they weren't interested in, in in expanding. But I remember thinking, like, wow, I'd, that'd be nice to have a, a cafe like La Colombe on the street. Um, but I think ultimately, you know, it it evolved in an organic fashion, and I think the way that it evolved is is great. And look, right now it's uh, it's obviously blown up, and it's become a super hot block, and it's now expanding onto the other numbered streets and up to Chestnut Street and, and south to Locust Street. Um, so, you know, be careful what you wish for because yeah. uh, it can happen. Let's take a quick break right there so I can talk to you about our newest sponsor, Run Avalon. RunAvalon.com is a brand new running and fitness apparel brand that launches on May 26th, the Friday before Memorial Day weekend, based in Avalon, New Jersey, down the shore. However, you can only get their apparel online at www.runavalon.com. They have captured the spirit of those who relish in kicking up before kicking back at the beach. You should check out their materials, their gear. We just got them in here at the studio. I was trying on some of the running shorts, the shirts, the hats. Great selection for both male and female. Some of their female tank tops are really cool. My wife uh, was trying them on earlier. Definitely check them out. If you're into yoga, if you're into running, if you're into working out, go to runavalon.com. So that neighborhood then becomes a hit, obviously, and you transform it. Now you're seemingly doing, trying to do the same thing again. And this seems so obvious as well, the Spring Arts District. I mean, you're talking about a block north of Center City. The Spring Arch District, uh, the loose boundaries are basically 8th to 12th Street, Callow Hill to Spring Garden. As I mentioned, you would seemingly think it would be a bustling neighborhood, but for some reason, developers have overlooked this for a long time. They essentially skipped over this and went further north to Northern Liberties and Fishtown. So what do you see in this neighborhood, and, and why do you think it's been overlooked for so long? Well, I, I can't say for sure why it's been overlooked, um, but definitely see some interesting characteristics here just like thinking about the topography of, of the city and looking down upon it and seeing another hole in the donut uh, seeing that you can walk to city hall from 10th and spring garden in 15 minutes you could walk to the heart of northern liberties in 10 minutes mm -hmm. you could walk to the fairmount neighborhood in 10 minutes Temple is moving, is pushing south here. So there's, a, there's an opportunity to knit together those neighborhoods. Uh, so, you know, those are a couple um, physical characteristics that made this pocket intriguing. Um, interestingly enough, I mean, this was an area that used to be the heart of industry. I mean, this was a hustling and bustling pocket here, the center of industry back in the day, turn of the century. Um, I guess with industry leaving, uh, leaving you know the the urban environment, leaving the city, leaving Philadelphia, these buildings started to deteriorate, and there wasn 't real utility in these buildings so you 've got some really beautiful physical architecture and, and um, uh, details of these properties and and why not shine a light on those and think about 
reimagining and repositioning and you know bringing you know breathing new life into these properties so what is the overall plan what are you trying to do here so I think you know sometimes the the neighborhood um, and its DNA begins to sort of tell you what you want to do with it or what you should do with it by just sort of listening and looking at it um, I think that you know these properties being you know the original maker properties um, bringing in other makers to these buildings not just the traditional maker, not just the stereotypical maker that's making furniture or making jewelry and selling it on Etsy, but also, you know, the metaphorical makers, uh, graphic designers and architects and engineers, but also bringing in distilleries and brewers and bakers. Um, and, and certainly those folks are going to embrace these types of properties here and, and, and curating the upper floors with more of the creative uh, class office type of customer. So uh, the idea of creating a center for that community, the, uh, this intersection between creativity and innovation, encouraging folks to think outside the box, uh, making this an authentically Philadelphia experience, really embracing the local entrepreneur, um, certainly being able to offer up spectacular space to uh, businesses at a discount to a significant discount to you know what's being offered up in the central business district mm-hmm. um, and then of course you know in a in a very centralized location i think that it's um you know it's an attractive opportunity when you look to transform a neighborhood and i don't know if that's your original intent but when you look at how that goes is it, is it start residentially does it start with retail restaurants office like how how do you look at that and and determine what's first and what's next so i mean food and beverage is obviously something that can change it pretty quickly Mm -hmm. Uh, if you can make that happen that's going to help probably expedite the process Um, we have not focused on residential there's enough residential development taking place in the city and around the city and I'm certainly, like I think most are, somewhat concerned with the potential absorption of all that product that's coming sure. online. Um, I think that um, unique, well-differentiated commercial product is something that, you know, while there's more and more of that that's popping up, I think there's still a void. And I don't think anybody really goes narrow and deep in that direction. So, I mean, that's where we're going to focus. So, well-differentiated, com- you know, commercial creative class product with the upper floors of these buildings and hopefully authentically Philadelphia food and beverage and other interesting makers that will populate the ground floors of these spaces. And I think that's, that's part of the recipe. Uh, you know, incorporate some public art, infrastructure such as new sidewalks, tree planting, lighting. You know, those are all components that will help, um, you know, add to the vitality and, and uh, you know, ignite change on the street. The infrastructure you talk about, plants and sidewalks, that's working with the city to get that done, or is that something you sort of have to take on on your own? It's a combination. Um, you know, that, that process doesn't happen as, as quickly when you're, sure. you're navigating through um, and trying to find collaboration from the city. So sometimes, you know, you've got to make some of those investment, you know, those early investment on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, the Reading Viaduct. This seemingly it goes right through this neighborhood. Can you talk a little bit about that? I hear so much about it, um, and you always see it on, you know, on Philly.com and in the news. Things are happening. What is happening, and what is it? Yeah. So there's this former elevated rail line, and Reading Railroad used to use this to bring um, product, and it was an active mode of transportation for commerce. I mean, this this line here used to go right into what 
currently is the Reading Terminal Market. It comes from North Philly, is that? It does, and it literally traveled right over Vine Street, and there's different nodes that were once used. Um, but, of course, there's now this, um, this architectural relic that's been standing still for, I think, since the 70s. And it's been um, sort of sitting here and deteriorating. And, obviously, we've seen this, uh, this, this push uh, in other urban environments to take some of this infrastructure and reimagine what it can be. We see it with, uh, in New York with New York's High Line. Sure. So this will be Philadelphia's interpretation of, you know, what this former rail line can be. Um, it'll, it'll ultimately turn into a public space, a public park. The first phase of it is already happening right now okay. on land that was actually owned by SEPTA. But the first phase, which commenced a few months ago, was actually going from um, the, the corner of Broad and Noble Street and sort of serpentining around uh, south to... The end of that first phase would be at 12th and Callow Hill, and what are they doing to start? Are they? I mean, is it open a green space? What are they doing? Yeah, so it'll be green space. There'll be lighting. There'll be benches. I mean, there'll be a. It'll be a spot to uh, walk your dog on. It'll be a spot to take a stroller with your your child on. You get a, a spectacular perspective of the city, at least looking south. Once you get above grade there at 12th and Callow Hill. Um, you know, the birds are up there, the bees, there'll be beautiful flowers and trees and plantings, uh, and that'll be the beginning of it. I mean, to help prove the concept, to show that it's something that it'll be a wonderful amenity for the city of Philadelphia, and then hopefully we'll see a second, third, and fourth phase grow from there. Where does it go? It, it, it ends at Rang Terminal? Well, it used to, and you can actually see right at, at Vine Street there, basically at 12th and Vine, you can see where this line was chopped off. Okay. Uh, so right now it goes down basically to um, uh, 12th and um, Vine Street, and it stops, and then it starts heading north from 12th and Vine up over Spring Garden Street, passing by a lot of our properties and heading north. Got it. So this is going to be similar to the High Line, I guess. I think there'll be some similarities. I mean, it'll it'll be authentically Philadelphia. I think it'll be uh, end up be being a little bit grittier than, than New York's High Line. It's also wider than New York's High Line, and it'll take on its own um, sort of uh, character. Okay, so this building that we're in right now is at 990 Spring Garden. So how big is this building? So this is 170,000 square feet. Oh, wow, okay. And, and can you talk a little bit about the types of tenants? I know you mentioned earlier the makers, but who, who are some of the tenants that are in here that are doing cool things in Philadelphia? So we've got, you know, this was a building that had traditional office space in here when we uh, closed on it about uh, two years ago, and we've been repositioning it and marketing to more of the creative class. So you've got technology groups, um, you've got arts and culture in here, you have a brew pub that's getting ready to open up, a group called Roy Pitts. I love their beer, by the way. I've Me too, it. right? It's really, really good. Artisanal, small batch brewing. I, I had it for the first time at Corner Foodery at 17th and Sansom. That's when I first was introduced to it. And this is going back maybe a year and a half or two years ago. And then I went in like six months later and they, they don't carry it anymore. Interesting. Which is odd. And then, so I Googled them. I, I, I only learned about them opening here because I was trying to find their beer after oh, I couldn't get funny. it at the Corner Foodery anymore. And it said they were opening, I guess they got delayed a little bit, but I've been waiting for them to open. Because I definitely want to stop over here and grab their beer. Yeah, so I mean, within the next few weeks, um, you know, you'll be able to pop in here and and have a Roy Pitts beer and and have some of their good food as well. Nice, that's great.
All right, so at the end of these interviews, I'd like to ask you a little bit about things you like in Philadelphia. It's the segment that I added. So what is your favorite restaurant right now in Philadelphia? Oh, geez, I have to think about this. Somebody asked me this recently, and, and I don't remember exactly how I answered it, but of course my, you know, my appreciation for food has somewhat changed because I, I have two young boys. Okay. So you know, they usually dictate where we're going to eat. I don't really have much of a say in that anymore. But I do like, um, I enjoy uh, cooking Solo's restaurants. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a fan of anything those guys do. I think they're super talented and really great guys. Abe uh, Fisher? I, I like Abe Fisher. A little heavy for me to eat there uh, too often. Yeah. Um, I like Vernick. Yeah. Um, I, I'm also a fan of, you know, being up here in this neighborhood, I'm a fan of, of Cafe Lift. Mm -hmm. I'm a fan of Prohibition Tap Room and Buffat. I love what Michael Pascarello's done with uh, these little neighborhood spots. Um, but like I said, my, my kids tend to dictate, you know, where we go and, and um, what we eat and, and, and drink. So, um, you know, I sort of take a backseat to, uh, to those guys at this point. I was going to ask you about your bar to get a drink and you just mentioned a couple of bars but where, where would you go to get a drink um i do tend look i still i i live in midtown village i'm obviously um pretty well connected to a lot of those operators there and and um you know i'm always sort of uh, pushing midtown village so uh, i'll head over to um tradici to grab a glass of wine or i'll head over to grab a drink from zavino um, obviously, uh, if I'm in the mood for margaritas, I'm heading over to Elvez or Lolita. So, you know, I'm partial to those, you know, those restaurants because obviously, um, you know, I feel like I had a I had a hand in sort of curating that, and um, you know, they're almost like you know that that whole little pocket is like my third child. One more question, and then I'll let you go. So, anything that Philadelphia needs to improve on? Well, I mean, I'm I'm always looking at. You know the city and the street and the sidewalks, and um, thinking about the infrastructure that we have here. I mean, it would be nice, and I realize we've made um, significant strides in the almost 20 years that I've been here. So I'm I'm not, um, you know, I'm not. I don't want to be that critical. Sure. But it would certainly be nice if there was a more cohesive strategy for addressing trash and lighting and, and really uh, ensuring that this city um, remains walkable, clean and safe, the homelessness issue that exists here. I feel like that's gotten worse yeah. in the last few years. I guess in a, like a lot of major cities. Well. Yeah, it's a little worse here. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I think it is. Um, but it, it would be nice if, if there was, you know, thinking about the construction that's taking place here, like how do you you know, navigate around construction yeah. projects, and, and a lot of times you see these construction projects taking place, and, um, you know, the stores that are contiguous to those construction projects are affected, the walkability of the, the streets are affected, so it'd be, it'd be nice if there was a little bit more of a cohesive strategy with addressing those, yeah. those issues. There's a popcorn, speaking of that, there's a popcorn store that opened on 12th, 12th Street. 12th between Sansom and Chestnut Street, oh, it's called Pop, okay. yeah. And... I, I don't, like right after they opened that building on 12th and Chestnut went under construction and you literally can't walk no. coming south you can't get to their and it's a shame because it's it's really delicious they did a great job renovating that spot and it's a pain in the butt trying to get there now yeah I mean it, it dead ends like it, it's the, the sidewalk 
and it's been, I guess, two years now that the building's been under construction? I mean, don't yeah. get me started on what's going on there. I can't figure that one out. You, yeah. could, you could have built, they did actually build, uh, you know, the project around Fergie's got up faster. That was out of the ground right. construction. <laughs> and we're That's still right. waiting for, you know, 1,200 chestnut to get finished. Okay, I don't think I have anything else for you, Craig. I really appreciate your time. Cool, yeah, my pleasure. Great. I love 13th Street, so I wanted to get you in, and I, I really I thank you for your time. Anytime. My pleasure. Um, whatever I can do to move things forward and shine a light on what's going on here in the city, I'm all for it. So that concludes the podcast. Thank you, Craig Grossman, for a great conversation and the education on how to transform a neighborhood. He did it once, and he's doing it again. Um, if you have not checked out some of the restaurants and bars he mentioned in the Spring Arts District, you should go check them out. I've been there myself, been to the Prohibition Tap Room. Um, as Kramer said on Seinfeld, I spent a month there one night. Um, but they're all great bars, great restaurants, and great recommendations. So thank you, Craig. Thanks to Run Avalon, runavalon.com. Go check out their stuff, their gear. It's really, really great. Thanks so much again, guys, for listening, and I hope you enjoy it. Go to Twitter, at Broad and Walnut, and follow us if you aren't already, and subscribe to us on iTunes. Thanks again, and I will see you. Well, I won't see you, but another pod drops next week. <laughs>